Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Colonel Logan E. Weston, the fighting preacher. Colonel Weston was part of Merrill's Marauders, an all-volunteer force that served in Burma in World War II. The Marauders fought primarily in the jungles of Burma, executing deep penetration missions behind enemy lines. The 1962 film Merrill's Marauders is based on their experiences. I'm Colonel Logan E. Weston, U.S. Army, leader of the intelligence Reconnaissance Platoon of the 3rd Battalion of Merrill's Marauders. At that time, it was not the U.S. Army, it was the War Department. And uh, they sent out a uh, request for volunteers for a dangerous and hazardous mission to be taken from units that had seen combat in the South Pacific. I had been on Guadalcanal and New Georgia Island and um, I volunteered in answer of that call for volunteers, expecting to go to the Philippines to relieve, uh, liberate the Philippines. And uh, we ended up going through the Tasmanian Straits around Australia, landed at um, Bombay, India, and then crossed India by train into Burma. At that time, we had been in the Pacific for over two years, most of the time in combat. And um, we just thought we'd offer our services in any way possible to shorten the length of the war. After we secured the island of New Georgia, that was in September of uh, forty. 43, we got on the ship expecting to go to the next island to the north and on ship found out that we were headed south. And that's the first we had any idea that we were on a different type of a mission. Our battalion was composed of combat experienced jungle fighters from various units of the South Pacific. 37th Division, Americal Division, and uh, other smaller units. We were the only battalion, the only unit in the Marauders that had prior combat experience. When we got to India, we found out for the first time 
that we were only a small part of a larger unit. And that's where the regiment was formed. And the regiment was composed of our battalion, the 3rd Battalion of Combat Vets, and uh, the 2nd Battalion that had come from Panama and Trinidad, and the 1st Battalion that had come over directly from the States. And all three battalions met there in, in India, and the regiment was there organized and formed as a regiment. Uh, Stillwell was the overall commander, and Hunter was the regimental commander of the uh, Marauder unit. See, Stillwell was the overall commander, and he was involved in a lot of politics between Chiang Kai-shek on the China side and Mountbatten on the British side or the India side. And uh, we seldom saw Stillwell, but uh, Marauder was really designated as our commander. Colonel Hunter was more of a commander to our unit because Merle was sick part of the time. He was dealing with Stillwell at higher echelon than I had known at that time, and we just uh, never saw Merle. We relied more on Hunter as our combat leader. Wingate had trained and moved to Burma and fought in Burma a long-range penetration unit. Uh, after, uh, we were patterned after his unit. One of the interesting sidelights of that training, during that three months that we trained in India, we maneuvered against the British forces that had come back out of Burma earlier. And um, my INR platoon one day uh, found out where their field kitchen was located. So we, uh, as a matter of our practice of long-range penetration and establishing ambushes, we ambushed their kitchen trucks, only to find out later that that was their Christmas rum that we had hijacked. And the British took a dim view of that. And uh, as a result of that, tempers got so heated up that they stopped the maneuvers a week early. <laughs> well, while we were under the uh, stages of organization, the fellows would uh, go AWL from camp and they wanted to see more of India. And as I have already said, most of us had been in the South Pacific over two years, seeing nothing but coconut and khaki. And the sights of India were very interesting to us. We wanted to see some of the country. And it was a wonderful feeling to feel that there was a big chunk of ground under our feet. As a commander of the Intelligence and Reconnaissance Platoon of the Battalion, I was kind of independent of all others and didn't have much of a chance to visit with any of them. One of the battalions, the, the, battalion, the INR platoon that served with the 1st Battalion of the Marauders, said that they had gathered up a lot of misfits from combat experience. My platoon was gathered from people that had a religious inclination, Christian, 
and uh, most of them that had harrowing experiences in combat. And I was given the choice or the chance of searching the entire battalion for people to be assigned to my platoon. And I selected that type of people, uh, of a soldier. People that had been uh, in difficult positions and had trusted the Lord for deliverance. And uh, that's how I happened to get the name, nickname of being the fighting preacher. (laughs) A lot of the commanders of smaller units within the South Pacific area uh, got rid of uh, some of their misfits. And uh, so we had several misfits in the uh, unit initially, but we had them three months to weld them into a element of a combat team, and that worked very successfully. The climate and the terrain in Burma was so different than any other place that we had served. But um, in Burma, my INR platoon patrolled in excess of 1,350 miles of jungle trail by foot. We had 55 men in my platoon, and that included some attached communications people, and three mules that carried our radios, our uh, generators, some of our heavy equipment. We kept that right with our platoon. Normally, my platoon worked between uh, 12 and 24 hours in advance of the progress of the following battalion. And our mission was to scout out the trails that the battalion could move over Uh, locate enemy positions, and, uh, of course, in case of running into the enemy, we would expect if it was a small unit, we would destroy them. If it was a larger unit, we would retain them or contain them in combat until the battalion caught up and was able to um, finish them off. To start with, the Chinese were engaged in trench warfare against the Japanese across the north end of the Hukong Valley. Our regiment patrolled to the eastern flank of those trenches and penetrated the enemy lines and then circled around behind them, and the mission at Wallaboom was to establish a roadblock to prevent the Japanese supplies from moving further north to support the uh, Japanese units engaged against the Chinese. At that time, the INR platoon was the advance element of the entire unit, of the entire regiment. And my mission was to um, patrol the trails through the town of Laganga into the town of Wallaboom. And uh, we contacted the enemy at Laganga and started. They were delaying action going back from Laganga to Wallaboom. After we contacted the enemy at Laganga, we started driving them back. And then about 12 hours later, the battalion caught up with us. And when they did, 
They took over the mission of driving the enemy back. That was on the east side of the river. And my platoon was ordered to cross the river, ford the river, and protect the flank of the battalion as it moved forward. Being across the river, I was isolated by the river, and um, we spent our first night in a swamp. At daylight, and it was real foggy. At daylight the next morning, we noticed some higher ground about 300 yards forward of our position. And I moved to that high ground, established my platoon all-round defense, and from that position could look down the river into the town of Wallaboom or up the river uh, to prevent any enemy patrols hitting the flank of the battalion. And it was in that position that I remained in defense until the battalion got into its roadblock position, and then my platoon was withdrawn to join the battalion across the river. When my platoon established its defensive position on the west side of the river, I established all-round defense and shortly after that, the enemy patrol coming up from Wallaboom uh, hit my patrol, bounced off, and within the next three hours, my platoon was completely surrounded on the far side of the river. The battalion during that time had moved into its block position across the river. And uh, after they got in position... I received orders to withdraw across the river and join the battalion. During the time that we were in that encircled position, I had one man hit by rifle fire in the abdomen, and a sergeant and myself went out into no man's land where he had been gathering camouflage and dragged him back into the primitive vents for his safety. And another man was hit by a fragment from a mortar tree burst, and it lodged behind his skull and his neck, knocked him unconscious. And a third man was hit uh, in the arm with flying shrapnel from a knee mortar shell, and it cut an artery in his arm. So I had three casualties among my platoon of 55 men, and uh, I had to put two of them. One was walking wounded, but the other two had to be litter carried across the river. So we organized litters from bamboo poles and field jackets, organized litter teams, got the wounded across the river to the battalion, and I stayed on that side of the river with the holding element of my platoon that was holding the enemy back. And uh, I was the last man to cross the river after I got all my men to safety. Our regiment went into the jungles, actually in three different groups, uh, a total in excess of 2,500 men. And we were opposing Japanese General Tanaka's 18th Division. 
And I think there were about 25,000 men in that division. It had been reinforced. So we were outnumbered 20 or 25 to 1 in most instances. We were successful for a number of reasons. One of the first reasons was that we were supplied every five to seven days by supply airdrop, and we had plenty of supplies available on call coming in from India. And uh, another thing, we would hit and run, hit, and before the enemy had a chance to retaliate in strength, we would disappear in the jungles. And uh, that contributed to our massive success. The knee mortar of the Japanese army was more like a grenade, but it was fired from a tube, a mortar-type tube, that was held alongside of the soldier's leg for guiding of the missile. Um, But it it didn't... uh, expand over a great area. The 81-millimeter mortar that we had was very much more effective, and we had different types of shells, uh, HE, high-explosive shells, and uh, against personnel. And as a, a matter of interest, when my platoon joined the rest of the battalion after we had completely succeeded in our mission, the mortars fired at the Japanese on both flanks of my platoon position, and they had fired over 181-millimeter shells, and they only had three shells left when I made my escape. Uh, Wallaboom was one battle that uh, we were uh, (laughs) uh, jeopardizing our our safety, but um, after the battalion caught up to us, we uh, were able to establish all-around protection and defense and get more mortars. We brought more mortar shells in with our mule trains, and uh, we resupplied from Laganga to Wallaboom with mortar shells, and that was a lifesaver. That was one time that we were in jeopardy, uh, another time, after we left Wallaboom and went south, my platoon was ordered, after being resupplied following the Battle of Wallaboom, my platoon was resupplied and given an order to move by forced march approximately 35 miles to the south and uh, check out the trails, determine what trails were best for the mule trains to travel over, and uh, we got down to the town of Nipunga just about dark. The battalion was at least 12 hours behind us, marching time, and they didn't get down there until late the afternoon of the next day. But at that time, I was given the mission of securing the south and east flank of the battalion escape route. The rest of our battalion and the second battalion had been given the mission of establishing a roadblock on the enemy main supply route running north toward Wallaboom, 
and they were supposed to hold that block for 24 hours. My platoon was ordered to establish security to the south. Eight miles south of Nkangatong, where that block was established, was the city of Kaming. The enemy were known to have a supply base and reinforcing troops there from the 18th Division. My platoon arrived at its destination at dark that night, and at daylight the next morning, I decided that the trail that we had come over that day would be the only escape route for the two battalions to evacuate over after they accomplished their blocking mission. And I recommended by radio to the battalion that he move me to the uh, town of Manpin, four miles to the south. And from that position, I could block any enemy coming up from the south and keep the escape route for the two battalions open uh, for their evacuation. Uh, At Pakum, where I established my block four miles to the south, I was hit by the enemy that had come up from Kameng, and for the next three days and four nights, I kept withdrawing up the mountain, grudgingly giving up space just to keep from getting surrounded. The enemy at that time outnumbered me by initially by a battalion in size to my platoon. And uh, when they threatened to and circle my platoon, I would withdraw to the next terrain feature up the mountain, and I established eight different blocking positions all the way to the town of Warang, and the enemy followed me, tried to encircle and cut me off, and uh, when I would withdraw on several occasions, they would, by banzai attack, attack the position that we had just vacated, but I suckered them up that south trail, and that action kept the north trail open for the battalion to evacuate over, and it was during that three days and four nights that I had to keep withdrawing to avoid being encircled or cut off. That was a harrowing experience and a constant changing situation. (laughs) The first major roadblock on the Japanese supply route was at Wallaboom, and the second roadblock was at Nkengatong. And when the battalion, when the two battalions completed their block at Nkengatong, they withdrew behind my screen to the town of Nipunga. And there, the second battalion dug in its defenses at Nipunga on higher ground, and the Japanese units that I had been delaying surrounded the entire battalion within 12 hours. So we then found out that I had not been opposing a battalion, I had been opposing a regiment. And uh, that regiment encircled the 2nd Battalion, which dug in at the town of Nipunga, and had them surrounded for 12 days. We uh, moved the 3rd Battalion, my unit, through the 2nd Battalion, further north, four miles to the town of Samsung Yang, 
And the enemy that had encircled the 2nd Battalion at Napunga patrolled the trail all the way to Samsingyang, and we had to fight through four miles of resistance to break through to relieve the trapped battalion. The relief came at daylight on Easter Sunday morning. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. My INR platoon have been given the mission of screening and securing the flank of the two battalions that had established a roadblock on the main supply route at the town of Nkangatong. And my three-day and four-night direct contact with the enemy forced me to withdraw a distance of about eight miles in three days' time. But that action maintained the escape route for the two battalions to escape to the town of Nupunga further north. Well, during the time that we were behind enemy lines in Burma, over the period extending from January, from 1st of February until September, uh, we were supplied normally every five to seven days by emergency airdrop. Sometimes that was delayed two or three days because of monsoon rains. But during that time, we were wet from the monsoon rains practically all the time, and that caused uh, foot problems and uh, jungle ulcers from uh, the skin 
not being able to dry out. And uh, then we were affected during the last part of the crossing of the Kumang Mountain Range by swarms of leeches. We called them elephant leeches. And they were bloodsuckers, usually about two or two and a half inches long. And they'd hold a lot of blood and then drop off. As you walk down the jungle trail, the leeches were hiding underneath the banana leaves or the large leaves along the trail. And when you brushed against that, uh, they'd attach themselves to any place on the body that they could get hold. For example, they would attach themselves in the eyelets of your shoes. And on occasion, there were so many leeches on your lower legs and in the eyelets of your shoes that had sucked the blood that it would put pressure uh, like a compress on, and your feet would go to sleep while you were walking. The blood circulation was limited. Also, there were problems with uh, typhus. Typhus that uh, we had never faced before was normally found carried by rats in the villages that we passed through. In that part of Burma, the villagers were 10 to 12 miles apart. Most of them had been evacuated by the villages because of the Japanese occupation, but the houses were still there, and occasionally the fellows would find a dry place to sleep in one of the houses or bashes, and that's where they apparently contacted the typhus. We lost several men uh, killed by the typhus term, and that typhus attack was very similar to the malaria attack. The only difference was that in the attack by a malaria, and of course we all had malaria, the temperature of the patient would rise, level off, and then rise again in steps. But the typhus uh, fever would just continually rise on a gradual incline until uh, the patient was overcome. My personal experience was that about every 90 days, uh, the malaria would flare up, and we tried to keep it suppressed by the use of adabrin. Quinine was the best uh, suppressive, but it was limited in quality uh, and quantity. And so we suppressed it with adabrin taken daily, and uh, we, we took so much adabrin, it was a yellow pill, and we took so much adabrin that our eyes and skin turned yellow. <laughs> well, the confusing part was for our medics, uh, the, the early symptoms were identical. And it was hard to determine whether a patient was breaking down with typhus or with malaria. And uh, it was, wasn't until the latter part of the campaign that they detected the difference and uh, all through the campaign, when a soldier raised a high fever and was unable to carry, see, we all carried 60 to 65-pound backpacks in addition to our weaponry. And uh, when a soldier was unable to keep up with the column, 
We'd load his pack on a mule and uh, let him walk beside. When he got so incapacitated with high fever that he couldn't even walk, we'd throw him on a, a mule and let him ride along with us to keep the unit together. And that applied with patients of both malaria and typhus, uh, in addition to battle casualties. When I went into Burma, I weighed 183. When I came out of Burma, I weighed 119. And that was probably about the average weight loss during the eight-month campaign. As a result of improper nourishment, you suffered the results of malnutrition. For example, my teeth became loose, and uh, I thought I was going to lose all my, all my teeth. But uh, because of the goom shrinking, the high fever effect, and um, all the time you were back there, you were sort of in a daze because of lack of proper sleep and mal uh, malnutrition in the diet. In, in Burma, the longest time that I went and the men of my platoon went on five days' rations was a period of nine days. We had to split the ration up to make them stretch out because we didn't know when more were coming in. We would occasionally come into a vacated village and find stores of rice that the natives had left there. I had one Indian in my platoon that I uh, used as a sharpshooter. He was a crack shot. He was an Indian from South Dakota, and uh, he would go into these villages if we were in vicinity of a village, for we would march 50 minutes and then rest 10. And if we were in a location of a village for that 10-minute break, we would see Chief Janus running around trying to catch one of these wild chickens that were in the village uh, clearing. And he would uh, catch the chicken and butcher it over an open bamboo fire. And normally we wouldn't stay there long enough to completely cook it. But it was not uncommon to see Janice walking down the trail after we left the village, chewing on a half-cooked raw chicken drumstick. So we had heavy losses at Nupumga before we crossed the Kumung Mountain Range and dropped in, down into the Irrawaddy River Valley. And then the Chinese joined us on the attack at our final objective of Mishnah. And uh, at that time, uh, we were in pretty bad physical shape and disease took its toll. A lot of our people, in fact, most of our people in the early stages of the Battle of Mishnah had been flown out to convalescence in India. Our uh, original units were so depleted that we had to consolidate. And then the Chinese joined us to beef our numbers up before the attack on the airstrip at Mishnah, our final objective. At Wallaboom and uh, particularly at Nupunga, my uh, Japanese Nisi would 
uh, crawl out and hear the Japanese officers giving orders to their men. And they would say, well, now we're going to launch a Banzai attack in this place. And the, the Nisi would come back to me and tell me where they were going to attack, where the order ordered them to attack. And that gave me an opportunity to move my automatic weapons in that dangerous place to eliminate a possibility of a penetration to my unit. See, my platoon engaged the enemy on 23 different occasions. The battalion following us only engaged them on about six occasions because most of my contacts with the enemy were small units and I was able to decimate them before the battalion arrived. To the best of my knowledge, all the Japanese that were involved in the Burma activity were schooled and trained in America. And they were true-blooded Americans. There was no distinction between them and other true-blooded American in the unit. And they would go over backward to prove their loyalty to America. The problem there was that we had to be careful not to let them get exposed too much because it would be disastrous if the Japanese should have captured any of them. Their life was really on the line at all times, and we had to protect them as a result. The problem, as I see it, there resulted from the weather conditions. There were times when the planes couldn't get over as planned and scheduled because of weather conditions. There were other times when uh, enemy interference uh, affected the supply drops. There were times when we dropped or had ordered fake drops, actually food drops dropped in an area where the enemy thought that we were going to come and pick it up and and uh, we would uh, march past that place maybe uh, 50 to 75 miles and receive the actual drop 50 or 75 miles further deep into enemy territory. This was a deceptive major. There were a lot of deceptive measures used throughout the campaign. My platoon, for example, would uh, come to a mountain stream, going down a mountain, uh, a uh, jungle trail. We'd come to a crossing of a mountain stream. It was uh, approaching darkness at night. And we would send a half squad or a maybe a full squad down the trail half a mile to a mile and then have them walk backwards to that mountain stream. The rest of the platoon would come to the mountain stream, go on the rocky bottom of the stream and go downstream uh, several hundred yards and establish a bivouac. When the Japanese found our footprints on that trail, they were confused because they would come to where our footprints stopped and they would thrash around in the jungle trying to find out where we had 
gone when we left the trail, and we would be half a mile or so away. That happened several times. When we uh, moved the platoon out of the mountain stream, using the mountain stream because there you'd not leave any footprints, and when we moved out of the mountain stream, we'd go up on the bank to a dry place and uh, established a four- or five-man outpost where we left the stream, and the rest of the platoon could get a fair night's sleep and get an opportunity to pick the leeches <laughs> uh, from their lodging place. Yeah, there's one, one day uh, we crossed 20, I forget, either 23 or 26 different mountain streams by fording as the monsoon rain started. And we'd ford the streams and our shoes and our feet would never dry out. That caused a lot of blisters from tender, wet shoes and wet feet. And before we went into Burma, while we were still in India, we had uh, platoon packets built up. My platoon had three packets containing a change of uh, jungle fatigues and shoes. We broke the shoes in while we were maneuvering in India, and when a person's shoes would wear out, uh, we would airdrop the entire packet. Not all of the men would have the same requirement, but everybody was provided a new pair of shoes within the platoon. And those packets were earmarked for a certain unit. Uh, Another thing, uh, on the air evac of the wounded and sick, we didn't have airfields. We had rice paddies that had been leveled off with entrenching tools, and uh, they were found in a jungle clearing surrounded by jungle, and uh, the plane was just, it would come in without any trouble, land without any difficulty, but when we put the wounded soldier on the plane, that extra weight was more than the plane could lift. And we had several planes that cracked up as they were trying to clear the jungle at the end of the airstrip. But we eventually got everybody that was alive safely evacuated by uh, hit-and-miss methods. (laughs) The word that we received was that if we were able to take Wallaboom, that would terminate our mission, and the British that were positioned on the Arakan front between India and Burma would take over and move south from there. We were successful at Wallaboom and immediately received orders to pursue a second mission, which would take us several miles further south to Nupunga and establish a roadblock at Nkangotong adjacent to Nupunga. And we were told that we would be relieved after that area was secured. And after we secured an area, the Chinese that had been the friendly Chinese under Chiang Kai-shek that had been uh, opposing the Japanese at the north end of Mugong Valley, 
they would follow us down and establish their lines further south, driving the remaining Japanese before them. And after we uh, secured Wallaboom and later Nupunga, that action secured the Mogong Hukong Valleys. The Chinese established their front lines at the south of the Nupunga battle area. And then we crossed to the east over the Kuming Mountain Range down the Irrawaddy Valley and essentially did the same thing until we got to our final objective of Mishnah. At the uh, fall of Mishnah, we were so decimated that the marauders that were still active were sent to the Chinese units to act as advisors to the Chinese. And that's how the campaign ended. At the time, we thought that uh, Stilwell didn't have a heart. (laughs) He kept pushing us forward. But we didn't fully realize the position that he was in. It was only after the end of the war that we realized that he was in an impossible position, opposing ideas of the British on the west and ideas of Chiang Kai-shek on the east. And he was fighting a political war along with our military action. We envision after the fact that the reason that we weren't given all the support and medical supplies and equipment that other units in the area were getting was because of uh, Stilwell having to appease the Chinese and the British forces on either flank of our unit. I have, uh, let's see, five, six, seven Purple Hearts. Only three of them were from Burma. The rest of them from Nam or Korea. But um, in jungle fighting, that really is similar to Indian-type warfare. It's individual against individual rather than large unit against a large unit with heavy equipment. And um, as a result of that, when one of your, the men that you were responsible for as an officer, when one of my men got hit, whether he was killed or wounded, it uh, was a very personal thing. And uh, I continually kept, asking what I might have been able to do to have avoided that tragedy. But it wasn't a whole wholesome lot slaughter like we are familiar with these days, but it was a more of an individual thing. And, uh, of course, friendships develop very strongly under those conditions. In my platoon, and again, I want to emphasize that my platoon operated almost exclusively independent of the larger unit. And my platoon kept going 
because they all had experienced God's deliverance in seemingly impossible situations. And uh, they had a strong trust in the Lord. I received the nickname of being the fighting preacher because in addition to commanding my troops, I had been drafted initially out of a seminary and had a little Bible experience uh, studying the Word of God. And whenever possible, whenever we were not in contact with the enemy or during a quiet lull, I would call the men together. We'd have a prayer session and uh, we would uh, study the Word of God. I'd give them a little encouragement from the Word of God. And I think it was that spiritual motivation that eliminated a lot of fear or at least enabled them to put the fear aside and overcome it and go on from there. And that was my personal experience also. That was Colonel Logan E. Weston. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll hear from Army vet Chris Goldsmith. Goldsmith served in Iraq as a forward observer and an on-the-ground intelligence reporter, documenting the atrocities of war and the toll on those who served. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.